Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you all this morning. Ooh, it's a pretty day. I'm glad you all are here in person, and hello to those of you joining us online. Um, just a few quick announcements. Um, first off, I just a little video that's going to go out online at some point today. We are almost done with our coat drive for St. Philip's School and Community Center. We wanted to send at least 300 coats specifically for children down to St. Philip's who need them over the winter. And you may have noticed in the bulletins the last few weeks that we have been including a link to an Amazon wish list. And then you can just buy a couple coats straight on Amazon. They ship right to St. Philip's. They're great, exactly the right sizes that they need. Um, and so if you w are interested and would like to send something down to St. Philip's, um, I'll ask that Bove send that link out to the, our email list some point later today, or you can go on social media. There will be links all over the place, or you can look at the bulletins over the last five weeks, and you can do that too. Um, it's a wonderful way to care for our friends down at St. Philip's. And so we are about 40 or so coats away from going over our goal, and so thanks for that support. Also, if you are a member of St. Michael's, or if you're not yet, then a reminder that we are currently doing our annual stewardship campaign, and if you've not been coming on Sunday mornings to have fun with Jesus, I really encourage you to do so. Um, that should be like every Sunday, right? Fun with Jesus. But specifically in October, our stewardship campaign committee is all over the building doing lots of good fun, including playing bingo with Jesus. And we've had, I don't know, what was it, Caroline, 150 plus people who went and filled out their bingo cards last week, particularly with kids. But I promise you, no one will judge you if you do it by yourself without your child. That is no problem. Um, there are heart-shaped bingo cards you can pick up any Sunday this month. And then as you go and play bingo, you get prizes. And last week's prize was this beautiful necklace that you could have gotten. And look, it even, I mean, Jesus loves you. It's a wonderful reminder. And there will be prizes every Sunday. And so go and find out what Jesus has in store for you this Sunday at St. Michael. All right. Oh, and by the way, make your pledge. There you go. Thank you very much. So let's get started with a prayer, and then we'll get rolling. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for bringing us together today. We give you thanks for all those who are here in this space, those joining us out on the web. Bless each one of us. Open us up. Fill us with your spirit. Give us discerning hearts and minds that we can grow closer to you as we study what you have done through the people you love in time. Be with our friends who cannot be here, who are sick. Be with those who are near death. Be with those we love and see no longer. Give us strength and courage that we can continue as best we can to be your hands and feet of love out in the world. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so a reminder that you can go to stmichael.org rbs and find out anything you need about this study. And if you haven't gotten your bookmarks yet with the schedule, then you can pick those up at the doors or get the digital copy online. Yes? One more reminder for next week about one of St. Michael's luncheons. 
Thank you. So next week, we have a Women of St. Michael luncheon. That starts after RBS, and what I typically do, and we'll plan to do again next week, is we will wrap up RBS about 15 minutes early. So at 11.15, we'll finish in here so that you can get to the luncheon, register, get your name tag, and be there before the program begins. And so anyone interested in joining the luncheon next week, I hope you will. Um, the women always do a really great series, and this year, their series is really outward-focused, and what we, as a community can be doing for our neighbors here in Dallas. And so I'd love for you to join them. And if you want to join them, you can come here first and I'll make sure that you get there in time so you will not miss anything for the program next week. All right, so today's lesson, we're looking at 1 Samuel chapters 11 through 15. We are really getting into Saul's kingship in these chapters. Samuel's not gone, but Saul really takes center stage. These chapters are going to be divided up into four sections for today's lesson. The first, we're going to talk about Samuel's first farewell. There are a lot of redundancies in this book, and I think that, as I noted last week, there are many stories that were essentially just strung together like pearls, and don't worry about them not making sense chronologically, or if you read through and you think, didn't they already do that? That is okay. It was just another good story. And if it really, really bugs you, then there are some nuance in the language that you can use to kind of say, well, maybe that came before that other thing. But I invite you to not be bothered and to just read them as good stories. And Samuel has many farewells. Um, Saul had many um, proclamations as king. Saul will also have many rejections as king. It is fine. The basic idea is Saul became king and then Saul was rejected as king. And it may have happened in one of many ways. So the first section is Saul's, Samuel's first farewell. The second section is Saul's first rejection. Then we're going to talk in the third section about Saul and Jonathan, because that's a dynamic relationship that will have an impact on David's kingship. And then fourth, we're going to talk about Saul's second rejection. So poor Saul gets rejected twice today. So let's jump in with Samuel's first farewell. So essentially chapter 11 is a little fighting scene. It's fine, but we're not going to focus on that. We're really going to jump on into chapter 12 because I think that makes more of an impact. So Saul is now king. Samuel begins to take his leave. In a sense, Samuel has done all this good work. He was a judge, then he became a prophet, he anointed the first king and Saul, he has proclaimed Saul as king, and Samuel's now just old and gray, as he says, and he's really done. He just wants to retire. You know, he's sort of done the work, He's good. He wants to kind of just ride off into the sunset and enjoy his retirement on some lake house somewhere, and he just can't get away. Samuel knows that the people did not, that the, God did not want the people to have a king, but the people really wanted a king. And so he knows he's sort of done something. God told him to go anoint Saul, but he knows that God's not happy about it. And so Samuel continues to remind the people that God is really not happy. Now, what we get in chapter 11 is a little bit of Saul saving Jebesh from the Ammonites. Saul is a decent military person. He goes out and he fights multiple times. And we're going to talk about some of that other fighting later. But Samuel 
in chapters 11 and then 12, specifically in 12, begins to recount God's good deeds throughout time. This is one of those nice moments where you get a super quick summary of all the good stuff that God has done. So those first verses of chapter 12 is really Samuel recounting those good deeds of faithfulness to the Israelites over time. Jump to chapter 12, verse 19, because this is really what I want to do and focus on today. Chapter 12, verse 19. As Samuel has gone through God's good deeds, Samuel is also reminding the people that they were not faithful to God when they requested a king. And so we need to hold that in our minds as we get to verse 19. So I'll just say it one more time. The people wanted a king. God didn't want them to have a king. The people complained and God finally gave in. But then Samuel says, remember, that did not make God happy. And think of all these different ways that God was faithful to the Israelites throughout hundreds and hundreds of years. And then he finally did this thing for you, you ungrateful, unfaithful people. So now we get to chapter 12, verse 19. All the people said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants, so that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of demanding a king for ourselves. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after useless things that cannot profit or save, for they are useless. For the Lord will not cast away his people for his great name's sake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And so we'll pause there. So yes, Saul's gone off and won a little battle. Good for him. Yes, Samuel has gone through this kind of salvation history of God up to this point with the Israelites and how he delivered them multiple times over. And then he says, but you still wanted a king. So God did it, but God's not happy about it. And so the people say, Samuel, pray for us. Pray for us because not only are we sinful, but we've done this big thing against God as well. Repentance is an important idea in Scripture. What is happening right here is that the people understand that they have done something against God, and now they are trying, in a sense, to repent. So I want to spend a few minutes talking about repentance because not only is it just a good idea for us to deal with repentance regularly, but right here we get this little moment of a repentant Israel through Samuel. Samuel is the prophet that the people understand has a deep, good connection with God. Now the people understand that they can talk to God. That's not um, uncommon. And we saw that with Samuel's parents, Hannah and Eli. They prayed directly to God to have a child. So it isn't necessary for people to go through a mediator, so to speak. But here Samuel is a prophet of God. And so it's almost like, hey, we think you probably have a closer relationship, like you're a little tighter with God than we are. And so we need you to help us repent to God. So what then is repentance? Repentance in Hebrew can mean one of two things. One is it can mean that someone feels sorry, that they are sorry for something that they have done. Now that's a feeling. And probably like me, we're all taught to apologize, right? So when you've made a bad choice and you've done a bad thing, you say you're sorry. We also know 
that whenever you tell someone to a child to say they're sorry, you rarely get a genuine apology. Right? We all know this with our children. When someone hits someone or does something bad, say you're sorry. Sorry. You know, that's kind of the apology we get. Okay. So there is the sense of a feeling of being sorry. Then there is the sense of turning or turning back or changing that takes that repentance into an action. So not really a feeling but an action. We talk about repentance at Lent, certainly, and other times, where we talk about a turning. There really is meant to be an action that follows the feeling. The problem, though, is when we only feel sorry and we take no action because we are sorry. Now, that happens all the time. How many times have you had a friend or a family member or a child or whomever who is so sorry that they did something and then they go do it again. Now we're human and we're imperfect, yes. But at some point, a genuine repentance is a genuine attempt to not do the same thing again. Most of us will fail, but at least giving it a good try matters. Here we have the Israelites who have heard the entire story of what God has done and they get it, they realize that they acted outside of faithfulness to God, and Samuel has done what they wanted. But to be honest, they're not terribly sorry, or else they would probably take Saul out of the kingship. Saul remains king. Then David, then Solomon. I mean, the king, the monarchy, continues. So the people are only so sorry. Really, they don't want God to come down on them. And so they say, Samuel, pray to your God that nothing bad happens to us. This is not the kind of repentance that we should lift up as the best example for each of us. Instead, we should see it as kind of halfway. Yeah, they said they were sorry. But if that apology does not follow with some kind of action, is it really good enough? And so that's, I think, all I'll say about that because I don't want anyone to sit here feeling guilty. Although, you know, guilt in church has a place. That's all I'll say. Any questions or thought on that? All right, let's go to section two. This is Saul's first rejection. So we are in chapter 12. Are we in chapter 12? Did I do this right? Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Hey, look at chapter 12, verse 5. Does it start with the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel? Or is that chapter 13? <laughs> Thank you. Okay, I thought I probably wrote the wrong number down. So chapter 13, verse 5. Just as soon as Saul becomes king, we get a near immediate rejection of his kingship. So let's look at chapter 13, verse 5. So as I noted, I'm sorry, I should say once again, the big arc of the story of Saul and then young David is the conflict between Israel and the Philistines. The Philistines are just constantly around antagonizing the Israelites. They're neighbors, 
They are big, they are powerful, and they're just always jockeying for position. And so essentially, Saul's kingship could be summed up as Israel knows they need to defend themselves from the Philistines, so they want a king, and Saul is there to defend them from the Philistines. That's kind of the quick summary. There's a whole lot more that goes on, but we have to keep the Philistines in mind. They're the principal antagonist all the way through until, really, until David's kingship. And even then, they don't go away. And of course, we know when the Philistines really come into play with our good Bible story, because who fights on behalf of the Philistines? Goliath. And so they're coming. The Philistines are like the bad penny. They just keep coming around. And so chapter 13, verse 5. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash, which is, by the way, has to be the best name of a town in the entire Bible. Michmash, to the east of Beth Haven. When the Israelites saw that they were in distress, for the troops were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Some Hebrews crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people began to slip away from Saul. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the offerings of well-being. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as Saul had finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to meet him and salute him. Samuel said, What have you done? Saul replied, When I saw that the people were slipping away from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines were mustering at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down upon me at Gilgal and I have not entreated the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him to be ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. We'll stop there. That's harsh. Saul's not really a bad guy in this scene. Saul showed up at Gilgal. He wanted to do the good work of resisting and defending against the Philistines. Samuel told him to wait seven days. He waited seven days. Seven days. He is looking at 30,000 chariots. I mean, these people are breathing down his neck, and yet he still waited seven days. And when Samuel didn't show up, he didn't just go fight. He knew. He needed God. He needed Yahweh on his side. And so he'll do it. He'll do the burnt offerings. He'll do the prayers. And then Samuel comes up and says, you are foolish. You have done a bad thing. And you could have had the monarchy forever, the little dramatic. But now God is going to pick another person to be king. This is significant. So let's take these in different pieces. So first off, I do want to reiterate, no need to read this chronologically because we're going to get rejections again. But what Saul has done here is do something akin to what Moses did way back in the day. So if we remember back in Exodus, Moses does not get to go into the promised land for one seemingly very small reason. When the people wanted water, 
Moses went to God and said, these people are complaining again. And God said, go speak to the rock and out of the rock water will flow. Now, prior to that story, Moses was told to strike a rock and water would flow. So Moses goes down and in his, I guess, hurry, he strikes the rock and water flows rather than speaking to the rock and water flows. And that then is what the storyteller says is the reason that Moses doesn't get to go in the promised land. So same kind of issue here with Saul. It seems like in the grand scheme of things, we're about to have a genocide, okay? So in the grand scheme of things, it just does not seem like that big of a deal. But just like Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land, Saul is rejected as king. Now, before you ask me, God is not necessarily doing it this way. Remember, the better question to ask here is, why did the people think God behaved this way? Why did the people think that God would have treated either Moses or here Saul this way? In my interpretation, what is happening here is that God is telling a person how to be faithful. And that person is not then doing what God said to do. Now, we can parse that out all day because that's the technical side of what God said is not the point. The point is that the story the storyteller is trying to make is that Saul was told to do a thing. Saul didn't do that thing, regardless of what Saul did do, even if it was small, even if it was seemingly the best he could do, even if it was faithful. Saul was told to do a thing. He didn't do that thing. Now God gets mad. That is the way that the storyteller is telling that same story. And it happens over and over and over again. We can go all the way back to the beginning. Why did Adam and Eve get out of the garden? They ate the fruit. Really? Is that so bad? But they did it. They were told not to. They're out. And so that becomes the, the loop of the stories over and over and over again. But what is important for us to note here about Saul is rooted in repentance. Saul does stuff he shouldn't do, but then Saul never gets to the point of genuine repentance. What we will see when we get to David and what is the chunk of this year's study, David is profoundly messy and problematic. He does the worst stuff. It's not about whether David does worse stuff than Saul. It's about when David does the worst stuff, David repents. And when Saul does not so bad stuff, but not what God says, there is no sense of repentance. Does that all make sense? That's hard for us because I do think we live in a world where we actually look at the actions done and we think not so bad or really bad and so anywhere in between. And when we're on the not so bad of the scale, we kind of think, God, calm down, really. Like when someone gets upset about a little thing, you know, take a breath, chill. But what we are learning here in the way that the story has been told for centuries is it's not whether something is wrong or how wrong it is. It's what happens after the wrong. And that's where we get in the New Testament, in the story of Jesus, this sense of grace, which has frustrated Christians forever because there are so many people who have done terrible things who in the end can repent and it's washed away. 
And all of us who do the good stuff most of the time look at that and go, it's not fair. <laughs> Except, I don't know about you, but for me, when grace really kind of hits the ground, there's something so beautiful about it. I, I am a boringly kind of, I don't really do bad stuff. I mean, it might shock you, um, but I don't, I mean, I'm really, I've not, I have no drama. I can remember as a child having to go to confession as a Catholic child. And I would say, and confess what? I mean, what did I do? Um, and so it's not like I lit stuff on fire or I killed animals or something creepy. I just, you know, I don't know. I was a back talker, so that's not great. But I mean, worse things have happened. And so most of us really aren't doing bad stuff. And so when someone actually does bad stuff and they get to a point where they repent and grace falls on them, I hope that we can rejoice. Like their win does not mean our loss. And unfortunately in our world today, that's what most people are trying to get us to believe is that no one else can win without us losing. Untrue. Others can win and so can we. We do not lose because someone else wins. I'm going to say it like five times because this is the hard idea. You know, when you watch the news and people are trying to get you to feel a certain way about whatever, underlying most of that is those people can't win because that means you lose. It does not. We can all win. We can actually all be in this together. I mean, as a Christian person, a person who would follow Jesus, that's the whole thing is we can all win. It just has to be something we choose. And so here, what we find is that the beginning of this entire story of the monarchy is really rooted in this idea of repentance. And we're going to hit it again and again and again all the way through this year. And so mull that over in your mind. Don't worry so much about the details of where someone was versus somewhere else. Go deeper than that and really start to think about repentance and how that impacts you. Because every person in this room is in some kind of relationship, a parent, a sibling, a friend, a child, whatever, where we have, we have or still are in a place of they are doing something wrong and the forgiveness is not being granted. The grace is not being granted. And we can hold on to that with a lot of righteousness, but it ends up hurting us a whole lot more than someone else. The angels are singing. <laughs> At least it's not a goofy ringtone. That was lovely. It seems church appropriate, so well done. All right, let me see. That is one idea here. The other idea is that, oh, I love it. Like 15 people just went to their purse, you know, to try and make sure that their phones are not on. Um, so this, the second big idea in this section is that Saul is now rejected as king. So now you've got this character issue around repentance. Now you've got the political issue around kingship. A monarchy, as we know, typically is passed from parent to child. Saul likely expected that Jonathan would be king after him. Well, what Samuel is saying now is that his line, his lineage, is no longer going to be part of the monarchy. That God's going to go choose someone else. That God is going to find a man after his own heart in order to be king next, unrelated to Saul. 
I think I've already said enough about the difference in character between Saul and David. So I think I'll just pause to say this rejection will come along with other rejections that will ultimately lead Saul to a horrible end. And we'll talk about that when we get there, which might be next week. If it's now, I think it's in a couple weeks. Um, But Saul is going to end up becoming this tragedy in scripture almost more tragic than anyone else. I mean, you can, when you think about tragic characters in the Bible, Judas, maybe, Saul is right there, and we're going to get there. Okay, any questions about this first rejection of Saul? Or the idea of repentance and all the others? You all are so easy this morning. Yes? Okay, so the question is, why was Saul continuously given credit for things Jonathan did? Which is a great segue, because section three is going to be Saul and Jonathan. Um, Any questions about this section of Saul specifically? And then I'll start with that question. Okay, let's pivot to section three. Jonathan is Saul's son. Jonathan's going to play a pretty significant part in... David's early life soon, because Jonathan and David become friends. Prior to David becoming king, Jonathan helps him out because Saul doesn't like David and wants him killed, and we'll get to all of that in a few weeks. Right now, Jonathan is a good military leader. So Jonathan's come on the scene, just the king's son, and so he naturally is helping with their military campaigns. Jonathan is going essentially to other parts of the battlefield. So Saul's got a big group in one part of the battlefield. Jonathan takes other troops to another part of the battlefield and kind of helps to outflank the enemy. Jonathan appears to be very good at military strategy. Saul is good too. But Jonathan is lifted up as another really good military leader. What happens with Jonathan multiple times is that he does something good and Saul then essentially claims credit. That might, I think we might read a little too much into that. I think it's essentially like any monarchy. I mean, any monarchy anywhere, the king or the queen claims the spoils of whatever someone else does. And so I think in this instance, it is mostly about Saul just claiming any credit for anything because he's the king. It doesn't necessarily have to do with Jonathan specifically. That being said, Jonathan and Saul's relationship is going to deteriorate in a few chapters. And we're going to be looking at that right here, especially with the Amalekites. And so let's jump into Jonathan as a person. Look at chapter 14. As I noted, Jonathan is an effective military leader, and we see many examples of this, but here's one example I wanted to lift up. So chapter 14, going to read verse 1 and then jump to verse 8. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Jump to verse 8. Then Jonathan said, 
Now we'll cross over to those men and we'll show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand. That will be the sign for us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison, garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. The men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer saying, come up to us and we will show you something. <laughs> That's super specific, isn't it? Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up, his, up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer following him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, coming after him, killed them. In that first slaughter, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed about 20 men within an area of about a furrow long in an acre of land. There was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. So we'll pause there. Jonathan is part of the military. Saul is the king. He's the one responsible for everything. But Jonathan is not only someone who follows. Jonathan is an independent thinker. He's kind of seeing what's happening and seeing an opportunity to do something good. Now, <clears throat> some kings may not mind that. Saul minds that a lot. And so when Jonathan goes off on his own, the storyteller notes he did not tell his father. So Jonathan takes his armor bearer, and they essentially creep through a little crevice over to where a small group of Philistine soldiers are. They come up on the Philistines, and in a, it's a very badly told story. Essentially, they weigh, lay waste to this little Philistine garrison, and that sends ripples of terror through the Philistine army. And so Jonathan's very small, simple action had a big strategic benefit. Because he beat this garrison, the entire Philistine army began to fear the Israelites. Now, Jonathan thinks, hey, this is great. Saul does not agree because Saul wants the credit of doing the good stuff. So let's look still in chapter 14. Let's look at verse 24. Saul is essentially mad about Jonathan's actions. And so in verse 24, it says, now Saul committed a very rash act on that day. He had laid an oath on the troops saying, cursed be anyone who eats food before it is evening. And I have been avenged on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. All the troops came upon a honeycomb and there was honey on the ground. When the troops came upon the honeycomb, the honey was dripping out, but they did not put their hands to their mouths for they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the troops with the oath. So he extended the staff that was in his hand and dipped the tip of it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers said, your father strictly charged the troops with an oath, saying, cursed be anyone who eats food this day. And so the troops are faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if today the troops had eaten freely and the spoil taken from the enemies. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. Okay, we'll pause there. It goes on to do stuff with the Philistines. But essentially what is happening here is Saul is acting very strangely. There's a self-centeredness to Saul's actions. Saul wants to take vengeance upon his enemies. And so in order to 
essentially goose those soldiers into getting the job done, Saul says, you cannot eat until all of my enemies have been vanquished. So the troops then, as we would imagine, are starving. They're really hungry. They're tired. Their eyes have gotten tired. And you know how that feels. Jonathan comes along. Well, you know, Jonathan had like hopped over into the crevice and he had attacked the little garrison and slaughtered them. And so he comes back. He had not heard this oath that Saul put on top of the military of the soldiers. And so when they come upon this honey, Jonathan's like, hey, some honey. And so he eats and his eyes brighten. Here's the problem. Then the soldiers tell Jonathan what Saul had said. We cannot eat. And rather than Jonathan saying, then we need to listen to the king. Jonathan says, that makes no sense. And you all need to eat. How can you even function? How can you do the thing that the king wants you to do if you are so hungry and weak? So go and eat. And the people did. The soldiers go and they eat and they eat. What ends up happening in the story is that they start to eat in a way that is not proper. And by proper, I mean, in order to eat an animal, one must bloodlet the animal. It is essentially a proper slaughtering of the animal or else it is not following what is ultimately like kosher eating laws and so, or just good eating. So part of what happens is that these soldiers go and they start eating in a messy, gross way. And Saul sees what happens. And he is a pragmatist after all. And he says, listen, if you're going to go against me, at least you can go against me in a reasonable way. And so they bring the animals in, they slaughter them properly, they kind of offer them up and then they eat them. And so Jonathan has put Saul in a very bad position because Saul said, no one can eat. Jonathan said, that sounds dumb. And the people start eating. So what is Saul to do? Saul kind of makes the best of the situation and at least has them eat properly. But Jonathan has been the one who has undermined Saul's authority again. And now Saul's anger for Jonathan has been kindled very strongly. All right. A word about Saul and Jonathan. Later in the story, their relationship becomes very difficult. If you put yourself in Jonathan's position, the son of the king is likely to inherit the throne. Because of Saul's actions, Jonathan will no longer inherit the throne. Jonathan, it is reasonable, would be angry about this. He had an opportunity to be the next king, but his father screwed it up. And so now Jonathan's actions begin to take shape on their own, and Saul begins to feel threatened. Saul will start to descend into paranoia, and it kind of starts right now. Jonathan is acting on his own against Saul's orders. Saul understands that even his own son is not respectful of his authority, which means most people may not be respectful of his authority. And he starts to look for people who are going to undermine him. Saul takes on the character of essentially any strong man by surrounding himself with weaker people. And so anyone who wants all the authority and all the credit and all the strength 
is going to necessarily surround themselves with people who are functionally unable to do their jobs any better than the strong man could. And by doing so, everything weakens. Rather than creating a cabinet of strength, what Saul is doing here is essentially creating a cabinet of weakness. And so his kingship and his leadership is going to begin to devolve over these next few chapters, especially, or I guess simply because Saul can't be threatened by strong people. And it kind of starts right here with his own son, Jonathan. All right, questions or thoughts about that? Yes. Good question, because someone's reading ahead. So (laughs) the question is, does the conflict between Saul and Jonathan, is it intentional to set up the support that Jonathan will give David in the future? It's difficult for us to talk about causation. I think that we read a little too much into it. I think that's one step too far. But I do think that the divergence here between Saul and Jonathan allows Jonathan to have the kind of headspace to see David as the next king and support that choice. We can color this in however we'd like. Jonathan expected to be king, Saul messed that up. So Jonathan's mad at Saul, okay. Jonathan expected to be king, he knows he's not going to be king. And so Jonathan at least wants then a good king to take over after Saul, okay, that makes sense. Saul begins to descend into paranoia and push away people like Jonathan who actually have integrity and strength and can do things well in favor of people who will simply tell Saul what he wants to hear. And so Jonathan then pivots away from Saul and wants him replaced as soon as possible. You can kind of fill in those colors in many different ways, maybe a little of all of those things. But what will end up happening, and so you can kind of put a little pin in this story, is that later on, once David shows himself to be a worthy next king, Saul is still king. So in the, great, in the grand story here, Saul's anointed king and Saul becomes king. What will happen is that David will be anointed king, a man after God's own heart. David will be anointed king when he's a boy and Saul is still alive. Saul doesn't know David is anointed immediately, but Saul at some point figures this out. And so Saul starts to act against David. Saul wants to kill David in order to maintain his power. I mean, it's classic, like people will not let it go. Regardless of whatever God wants, Saul is going to white knuckle it into the grave, which he does literally. And so David behaves pretty well. He's pretty patient because he is a man after God's own heart. Saul, however, becomes a lunatic, a paranoid lunatic. And Jonathan sees Saul for who he is, and then ultimately will support David in becoming the next king because Saul has just set everything on fire because he's afraid of losing his own power. Any other thoughts or questions about that? Really? Okay. 
Let's go on to Saul's second rejection. In order to get into chapter 15, we need a little backstory. So we meet the Amalekites in chapter 15. The Amalekites are descended from Amalek. Amalek is the grandson of Esau. And so we need to go back into our Genesis knowledge to understand where the Amalekites fit into this whole story. Remember, Isaac has twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau is technically the older twin, but Esau does not really develop his family the way that is godly. Um, in other words, Esau goes and get wa gets wives from the local people, whereas Jacob goes back to the old country to find the right kind of wife. And then, of course, we know Jacob's story with Leah and Rachel and all of that happens. But what we may forget is that Esau is still there. Esau still living life. And you may remember Jacob is coming back home and is sure that Esau is going to be terribly mad with him. And Esau was always the bigger guy, right? He was the one who was out working in the, in the fields and working with the livestock. And remember the story where Isaac can't see anymore. And so Jacob puts on the fur of the animals so that when Isaac touches him, he'll think that he's Esau. I mean, gross. So, I mean, I know, I know some men can be hairy, but that's nasty. So, you know, it's a... Esau's always been this like big guy, but that doesn't really matter as much as Esau just didn't do life the way God wanted. And so descended down from the wrong wives is this grandson, Amalek. And so Amalek becomes the essentially the tribe leader for the Amalekites. Now, we remember Joseph gets sold into slavery, gets into Egypt, there's a famine. Jacob's entire family goes to Egypt where Joseph can watch over them. That's only Jacob's family. Esau's family stays. And so all the while that Jacob's family is in Egypt, 400 years of slavery, Esau's family is still over in the Canaanite region. When Jacob's family is taken out of slavery in Egypt by Moses and then wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, and then Joshua takes them into the promised land, Esau's family are still there in this same region. And so the Amalekites, like the Philistines and the Edomites and all the others, are still around there. But as we noted with the Canaanites, back when we talked about Joshua in the promised land, there is this theological sense that because Esau, or go way back to Noah, because they made wrong choices, their descendants are somehow lesser than those who become the Israelites. Does that all make sense? Okay. The Amalekites are then targeted for God's vengeance. Now, the other thing that we need to know is that the Amalekites don't just come out of nowhere. Back when the Israelites were wandering around in the Egypt, I mean, I'm sorry, in the wilderness, the Amalekites attacked them. We did not cover that, but because it was a small little note. But the Amalekites attacked them in a very dishonorable way. The Amalekites came up behind 
all of the long train of the Israelites wandering around the wilderness because that was the easy place to attack. Because who's in the back of the bus? It's the elderly and the sick and the children. They're in the back because all of the, essentially, the strong people, the fighters, are up front because that's how they're going through the wilderness. Well, the Amalekites attacked the weakest people of the Israelites, killed a lot of them until the Israel fought back. But that is staying in their memory, staying in God's memory. And so all of that is important to note before we get here to chapter 15. So any clarity about any of that, about where Amalek fits or where the Amalekites and what they've done? Do the Amalekites worship idols? Esau was left out of God's revelation. So we, we have, in the patriarchy period, essentially, there seems to always be someone left out. So Ishmael's left out, and Isaac receives the promise from Abraham. Then Isaac's promise goes to Jacob, not Esau. And so Esau's left out. And so all along the way, you kind of get this collateral damage, people who are left out of the promise. And so to answer your question specifically, yes, the Amalekites are, have created an identity that does not have anything to do with Yahweh as we know Yahweh at this point. But what I also want to say is it's not necessarily that they rejected Yahweh. They just never received that revelation. And so that's, it's important for us not to make a natural, draw a natural conclusion that somehow the Amalekites like have turned away from God or something like that. They, they sort of never had it. And ultimately, the desire for the I don't, what do you, uh, the Semitic peoples, descendants of Abraham, because these are descendants of Abraham. What is happening in the telling of these stories is an extremely specific parsing out of the right people. And so the right people understa understand God the right way and they follow God's word very specifically. Because who's writing this? the people who came from Judah into the exile. And remember, I've talked about the Samaritans and all the many others. They are, in a sense, Jewish too, but they're not the right kind of Jew. And so the right kind of Jewishness comes directly out of the people who were in exile in Babylon. And so they come back with a very specific set of rules about what it means to be the right kind of Jewish person. And so when they tell all of these stories that predate the exile, they still have that in their mind. And so groups like the Amalekites are simply not the right kind of descendants of Abraham. They are. Does that make sense? Yeah. I thought I saw a hand. Yeah. Well, didn't Esau in a way reject God when his soul was birthright? Can I go back to the heart of the matter in a sense? Yes, thank you, scholar. So... It is too simple to make Esau out to be a total victim because the way the story is told 
Esau was essentially really hungry one day and gave his birthright to Jacob. And so by doing that, Esau did, in a sense, reject faithfulness to his father and his grandfather and the promise that they received from God. So totally. We could, we could take that story literally and say Esau made a choice that separated him from the promise God made to Abraham. Or we can take that story as a story and give Esau credit for not actually being a total idiot and understand that the people who are telling that story are Jacob's descendants. And so they had to, in some way, validate themselves as being the right kind of descendant of Abraham. Now, I'm not saying that Esau didn't do that, but every time I read that story, I think, dummy? And maybe he was dumb. I don't know. I mean, he could have been thick as a brick, but I think it's more likely that Jacob became the next patriarch for this group of people who are writing the story, and so they've got to write the story in a certain way that validates their own identity and not the people who they are essentially acting against. Other questions? This is a good one. All right, let's do one last thing. Saul's second rejection. So all of that is to say, here come the Amalekites. Chapter 15, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did in opposing the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. Now go, this is talking to Saul, go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 soldiers of Judah. Saul came to the city of the Amalekites and lay in wait in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, go, leave, withdraw from among the Amalekites, or I will destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites withdrew from the Amalekites. Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. He took King Agag of the Amalekites alive, but utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep and of the cattle and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was valuable and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless. They utterly destroyed. We'll pause there. Once again, Saul is going to be rejected for doing something that actually makes him out to seem not so bad. I mean, it's hard to say everyone died but that guy, so he's not so bad. That's not exactly what I'm saying. But here God says, go destroy everything. Everything. Every person, every animal, everything of value, destroy it all. Saul takes his troops and destroys a whole lot. Every other person dies except the king. Most of the animals die except all of the really best ones. And then even the valuables are not all destroyed. He keeps some of the things that are most valuable. So in the end, Saul probably destroys, I mean, what do you think? 
80-85% at least. And yet, that is not what God said. Here we have a second rejection of Saul that comes later on in the verses. Because Saul didn't do what God said. And so once again, just like with Moses, it doesn't seem so bad. Because Saul, if anything, is sparing the king. And so as Saul spares the king, we might look at that and say, at least he spared someone. No. We might look at Saul and say, think, well, he kept the good livestock. That seems smart, right? Let's bring all the really strong livestock to intermingle with our livestock, make ours better. No. Keep all the valuables. Let's get a little richer. No. God said, and Saul did not do. Now, before you go and ask, why would God want to kill all these people? Don't. Because the story is being told not about the killing. The point of this story is being told because Saul just couldn't do what God told him to do. Now, did God say to do it? Think whatever you want. I, I am not burdened by this question because God, God, I understand God through Jesus, okay? So we see Jesus not doing anything like this. And so when I see this story, I don't think, eh, why was God so mean? No, the people understood that Saul went and did a thing, but ultimately Saul lost the kingship. And so here's the choice someone has. When Saul is named king, but David becomes king next, not Saul's child, and David is named the next king before Saul's even dead, we've got two choices. Either God was right or God was wrong. And if God was wrong, God certainly is not the God we thought. And so we choose God was right so if God was right in picking Saul to be king, it must be Saul's fault, not God's fault. It's not God's mistake, it's Saul's mistake. And so all of these stories about Saul are really to be very clear. Saul is the problem, not God. And so how did that happen? Well, this is the way the storyteller told the story. Obviously, there had to have been some military campaigns. Military campaigns against the Philistines, military campaigns against the Am Amalekites, and on and on. When they go back to tell that story, they're telling those stories of those military campaigns in a pretty specific way to be super clear that Saul is the problem and not God. Now, we can read that and interpret that in a pretty pitiful way. It's kind of like, really? Moses did all that good stuff and just because he hit the rock, didn't speak to the rock, he doesn't get in the promised land, that sure seems unfair. But is it better that it seems a bit unfair than that God is wrong? Probably. And so in this moment, we can say, that seems so unfair that Saul is so very specific. It's, I mean, he seems targeted. And maybe so. Because these people are writing hundreds of years later, they know Saul's son did not become king. Why? This is the story they created in order to make sure that they set David up to be the king God really wanted for the people. Any last thoughts or questions? Yeah. Chris, I don't mean to challenge, but... Challenge away. I don't understand um, 
industry that follows this up until now when people, <coughs> militaries, slaughter societies in the name of God. Which ones, I mean, how, how do you choose what's right and wrong? Or it seems selective to me. In this case, we're not. Don't go there. But so the challenge really is, you're bringing up what would be just war theory. Um, when is it okay to kill somebody? Is essentially the question. Yeah. And so we can extrapolate that out a whole long way. Some, I mean, we can go to one of those moments where somebody's about to kill your child, do you kill them instead? And we would all probably say, sure. Like that's a just defensive killing. Then you can go all the way to genocide in the 20th century and say, you know, the Holocaust or Rwanda, or you pick one. That's not just killing. Somewhere in between, we have to draw a line. But the problem is that entire decision point is based on it is okay in some instance to kill. Here's the problem. The inconvenience of Jesus is he never did. And could he have? Of course he could have. He, wrote, he, he brought people back from the dead. He could certainly have sent them there. And yet he never did. Even when he's being arrested and Peter cuts the ear off the soldier, he heals the man and says, put your sword away. So the inconvenience of Christ is in his model for us. You don't kill anybody. Now, we can have extremely reasonable, and I would argue faithful debate, that you could still justify someone's death in order to defend others. And I mean, we talked, I think, a few years ago about Bonhoeffer, who was so anti-killing for so long until Hitler had done so much that even he himself said, you know what? Even if it's wrong, he has to die. And I think to me, that's where we land. You know, if someone's there with my child, it is wrong for me to kill the other person. I would still do it. Me trying to justify it doesn't make it right. It is not right. But it's a wrong I can live with. And I think that's the distinction that we have to make in order to live in a world that is very complicated. And so I cannot do just war theory for you in 90 seconds. So if you would like to ask a follow-up question, put it in the chat, send Bob an email. Happy to do that a bit more next week. But that's all the time I have. Thank you all very much. See you next week.